Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. In this edition, producer Mercedes Grant explores the sensitive subject of death, how we prepare for what's an inevitable event, yet usually shy away from altogether. It's December 14th, 2016, five years since the death of Gloria. She was a fierce woman in her temperament and in her convictions. Gloria always sought the company of flowers and trees, toiling over garden beds and seeking new species to propagate. She volunteered as a master gardener with the Calgary Zoo. I suspect she may have enjoyed the plants company to most people's, but who can blame her? She was a closet astronomer also, keeping up to date with all of the latest news from NASA. She grew up in a traditional Ukrainian Catholic environment, but developed her own ideas about the world and its wonders at a young age. Her devotion to the natural world was reflected in her practices, composting in the suburbs of Calgary and developing an advanced and very particular household recycling system long before such things were considered normal for most. Gloria was awed and softened by the vast brilliance of this planet and of human innovation. She planned to donate her body to science when she died. It was early afternoon on a cold, bright day when Gloria, my mother, took her last breath. Her body could not be donated to science. Instead, her ashes are to be spread in a forest over the blueberry patch she spent hours in someday. Such is the way with daughters and mothers that our relationship was complex. Happy memories always include the two of us exploring in nature, hiking or talking about aliens and their possible existence at 2 a.m. with a cup of hot milk in front of a fire. Modern Western society doesn't really know what to do with grief. In the past, people would wear black to indicate a death and time of mourning. It was a clear sign that everyone understood and respected. Now, a clear sign of mourning is guzzling whiskey and hanging onto your job or partner or sanity by a very thin thread. It's clear that something is missing, that the tether between our own cycle of life and our connection to the natural world has been severed. In an effort to understand my own grief, I've taken a step back to get the bigger picture. Talking to residents of Cortez Island, modern death midwives, experts, and my friends to explore how our disconnection with the cycle of the natural world influences our relationship to our own mortality. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that necrophobia, the fear of death, is the second most common fear, just under the fear of public speaking. All right, so we're all pretty terrified of the idea of dying, but why is something so natural so scary? We over-
over-identify with the material world. And when we die, it's pretty much useless. Everything we've collected, everything we've identified with, everything we've worked for, everything we've built, everything we've created. And, and I think the primary wish is to be remembered. Death can obliterate the memory of a person. So that's scary. It's like that bumper sticker, the guy who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> Are you afraid of dying? No. Why not? Because um, I have a fair measure of trust. I'm curious because mm -hmm. I think it's the other end of birth and we celebrate births in a huge way. But we, you know, death happens behind closed doors. Death happens alone a lot of time. We're not comfortable with old people because they're close to dying. And that reminds us that we're not that far behind them. Some of my first experiences with the idea of death came from visiting my grandmother in a nursing home, a place so horrifying that as a child, I went into mild panic at the very thought of visiting her, despite our close bond. The Western mentality of aging is reflected in our obsession with youth as we discard our elders into these glorified hospitals and deem them unproductive members of society. Do you remember your first encounter with the idea of death? Here I connect with friend and Cortez Island resident Tyler Sparks as he recounts a defining moment in his childhood. First thing that comes to mind was uh what was my earliest experience with death that I remember and um, my grandfather, my dad's dad died when I was about three and a half and uh, I don't remember how all this fit together um, but my memory about this was just having a, an a extreme anxiety attack. Uh, when I was about three and a half on the couch in my parents' living room. I remember um, having watched on the TV with my parents that Ben Johnson had been accused of uh, using steroids in his 100-meter dash. But I don't know what the connection was between all those things. Um, but um, I just remember, uh, you know, screaming off the top of my lungs when my dad, you know, was lucky enough to have a very kind and loving father who held me and while well, I just said over and over again I don't want to die and I don't want to die I don't want to die he said that he just thought I was having what he, he had a specific word for it but it was a uh, a period in a person's life when they first perceived death most of us don't seem to have grown up with a realistic narrative around death instead our beliefs were formulated around popular culture's depiction of death in the movies and on television, unlike many other cultures where ritual and the natural cycle of nature play an important role in the life and death of its community members. Discussions with my mother circled through evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and just how the heck humans came to be where we are at now. My mother believed from a scientific and spiritual perspective that we were born of stardust and that we returned to the stars after death. I adored the stars and anything to do with space, spending hours looking up at the night sky, both overwhelmed and calmed by its vast presence. After she fell ill, 
with the neurological disorder that would eventually claim her life. We never spoke about death or the stars again. We don't see the cycle of death, we just see death. You know, we're not comfortable with the idea of being recycled ourselves, much as we <laughs> like to do it with everything else. So until you're aware that it's all right to die, there's movement beyond death of some sort. A lot of people who have had glimpses of that or near-death experiences or people who've studied in their spiritual practices uh, things around death, they, they actually say, well, this is probably the worst place you're ever going to end up. What are you worried about? Yeah. You know? The First Nations peoples of coastal British Columbia honored their dead with prolonged ceremonies and rituals that integrated their natural surroundings. The Slyaman people, believing the soul left the body immediately after death, moved quickly to wash and groom their dead and placed the body in a wooden burial box. The box was set in a cave or rock crevice on an island away from the village. They burned the possessions of the dead to ensure they could be used in the afterlife. Red cedar boughs and hemlock were used to cleanse the space and the mourners to ensure that those left behind were not ghosted by the dead. After the death of a spouse, the widow or widower remained secluded for a period of time. Female members of the family cut their hair short. The surviving spouse was not permitted to eat any fresh food for four days. If they wanted a taste of salmon, someone else would chew the salmon into small pieces and give it to them. It was believed if this precaution was not followed, the salmon in the streams would disappear. Both the island Comox people and the Slyaman people erected carved poles to commemorate the dead. In the spring of the year, at dusk, when ghosts are believed to be near, some slam and families gather and burn food for their dead ancestors. The remains of the winter's supplies of dried salmon or the favorite food of a deceased relative is placed in the fire. As they call out, this is for you, naming the ancestor to whom it is going. You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. Nayo Davis. I am the owner of Classic Cremation and Funeral Services, and uh, it's a small funeral provider business in Vancouver, independently owned. Um, and I look to just do things a little differently from what most of the other funeral providers are doing. Hi, I'm Rena Lazar, one of the founders of Willow. We do uh, inspired end of life planning and soulful personal development, and we are based in Vancouver. And I'm Michelle Pante, uh, co-founder with Rena of Willow, and I'm also here as someone who's working with NIO over the next several months, completing my funeral director apprenticeship. These women are honoring the ancient tradition of death midwifery while exploring a new frontier that encourages people to question their own mortality, no matter where they are at in their cycle of life. I think what was missing for me was the um, the the uh, the cel- celebration. I don't mean in a Yahoo way. I mean the honor, the the honor of death, like really honoring the passage of what happens when someone dies. That was just completely missing, and I think that's what's missing with a lot of people because 
most people live their life not thinking about death. I think everyone subconsciously or consciously is afraid of death. There's a beautiful ritual around death that most people don't partake in. It's robbing them and me as the, grieve, the bereaved of the honor of really saying a proper goodbye. Gloria was fighting with the doctors until the very end, swinging dramatically from wanting second, third, and fourth opinions to throwing in the towel altogether. She died without a clear acknowledgement of her fate, leaving us scrambling in a state of despair to sort out what we thought she could have wanted the end of her life to look like. Some of us were angry and defeated with a decision made to honor her life with a very traditional Ukrainian Catholic service but we had little energy left to fight with each other about it. What I came to really see and feel and hear from the people I was looking after was how poorly we were doing it as funeral directors. When I left um, the corporate world and decided to open my own, I, I did it with the intention of there's got to be a much better way of doing this and it, it can't be that hard. And the simple way to start is just to say, how can I help you? In my eyes, there just needs to be more of it. And I'm thinking, why can't the rest of them see that? Why isn't this becoming more and more common here? It is in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, Canada is just quite behind in that. Most people, and I'm, I was the same maybe two years ago, three years ago, they just have no idea what's possible, what to do when someone dies. And I think the reason they don't know that is because, like what I mentioned before, and, and you just mentioned, is people don't want to think about death, they don't want to talk about death, and they kind of fear it. So what we're doing is we're bringing people together to say, you know what, let's think about the fact that you're going to die one day and we have no idea when. Mm -hmm. And how can, what can we do to prepare for that? So one of our workshops is about writing love letters and a heart will. So writing that letters to people who are really important to you in your life, just in case, you know, you don't have time before you die to say the things you want to say to them. It's that process of actually um, consciously contemplating one's own death that brightens up life. In the last hundred years or so, um, there, there definitely were uh, enough rural happenings where people were looking after their dead. Slowly as we've become um, more of a society moving into the city, there's been that loss of we don't have that community anymore. Humans long for connection. One study showed that lack of social connection is a greater detriment to health than obesity, smoking, and high blood pressure. So it makes sense that our shift away from strong, reliable social networks in tight-knit communities has not only impacted our longevity, but has also shifted us away from the important social bonding activities and rituals that are shared in these small communities. I spoke further to Rick Bachner, a longtime Cortez resident, about his experiences in times of loss in a community of 900 people. Death becomes very creative. When Emily Ellingson died at a very young age of cancer, there were some really beautiful ceremonies done on her behalf. But they were put together at the time by people who cared. And it wasn't 
an institutionalized ritual that was main purpose was to keep emotions in check. And I think things get institutionalized for more for reasons of control than uh, just because we don't we don't like chaos and sometimes things around death get chaotic. I think we need to get better at not dressing up death in a whole lot of institutional garments. Rick's friend, Howie Roman, a carpenter and 40 plus year resident of Cortez, recounts stories of the community coming together to build a coffin for a young man who had taken his life. I was asked by my son if they could use the the shop and I said yes and so uh, on the weekend on the Saturday there were 30 people come through here and it was really special and it was summer so there were clusters of people sitting outside sanding pieces of wood and uh, uh, other people in the shop you know running to running machines and uh, it was just wonderful to watch and you could see this group of people and a group of young people in their 20s and 30s uh, dealing with this process and it's a it's a very special thing that that we get to do here all of it tends to be personal which of course uh, as a society we try to be as impersonal as we can around death and, and why do you think that is because it's scary and because we're not taught how to how to deal with it in in the western world this community excels at weddings and funerals. Uh, we'll fight about the stupidest stuff uh, and drive each other crazy. But when it comes to birth and funeral, weddings, funerals, the big stuff, this community is amazing. We're approaching changing our reality by tapping into the fact that we really see death as an opportunity the reality of the fact the reality that we're all going to die is an opportunity to really live this life the best way we can and as and as to live fully we're all dying we're dying all the time from the moment we're born we're dying and dying is a process and why not tap into that light now when we don't know how can we nurture conversations around death and dying in our personal lives and in our communities. I go back to my childhood lots with that. So I grew up a little farm and we, we grew everything that we were gonna eat and we also raised our own animals and we butchered our own animals. And, and I was, from the time I was born, just exposed to a cycle of life and it was just the natural cycle. And, um, I think that that is so important for people to just be in the world, go out in nature and see what the rest of nature is doing. What are all these other animals doing? What are plants doing? They, they live, they sprout, they blah, 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 and they die. And it's happening all the time. And I, I think that it's part of what has helped me to be uh, comfortable in my skin as a funeral director is just having had that um, well, just being grounded in life and that with life there's death. So if 
people in the city, get out of your house. <laughs> Go look at worms and see what's going on in the dirt. I believe that there's a lot we can do uh, in support of our own learning in um, as we care for children and support them to be with the cycle of life. Dr. Donna Dreyer, a transpersonal psychiatrist, board member of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, as well as a longtime Cortez Island resident, explains how deepening our relationship with nature and uncovering our undeniable connection to the natural world through the use of plant medicines and psychedelics can have a profound effect on how we accept and move forward with our own mortality. What we're talking about is a, a dosage that will put you um, into a journey mm -hmm. um, out of this present time and place and into a, a journey into another time and place. It actually turns off the part of your brain that um, allows you to remain conscious of being separate from everything else that you and the, the uh, it, it maintains the illusion that you end where your skin ends. In 2015, the New York Times ran an article written by author and activist Michael Pollan called The Trip Treatment, exploring what he called a renaissance in psychedelic research. This research included the use of psilocybin, commonly found in so-called magic mushrooms, to help alleviate existential distress and anxiety around death in terminally ill patients, and it's working. It turns off that part of our brain that that maintains the illusion of being separate from everything. Right. So you move into a, an experience of being one with everything. What does that mean to become one with everything? So suddenly you can imagine you are the rock or the tree or the animal or the person next to you or the earth or the universe, you know? And so, so then, what, then what meaning does death have if you are already one with everything. Most of the people who have this experience, who have cancer, they suddenly realize that they have nothing to fear. So it really does change your relationship to the dying process, to being dead. Suddenly death has a completely different meaning. I've always seen these medicines the way that they've always been used best and most appropriately and most efficiently even mm -hmm are in the traditional societies, it's always been a part of the society. It's been with elders showing young people how to do it and teaching them. But because of the repression, the elders who knew how to use these medicines were not ever allowed to teach. Right. And it was, you know, that whole um, passing it from one generation to the next was broken. So we're hoping to bring that back. So we're trying to do some training programs and mm -hmm. teach people how to use this better. And you're like perfect vision of how this is going yep. like how would you like to see them integrated more efficiently and more effectively into into mainstream society well i mean i have a it, it could be a, you could see it as a fantasy or a vision of a um a treatment center mm -hmm. let's say something that might look like hollyhock like right. here on cortez mm -hmm. um where you have lots of interwoven interdisciplinary streams of possible treatments for people who have um, addiction or cancer or, or trauma that they're trying to heal. Donna's vision isn't that far off from reality. As further studies continue around the world at Johns Hopkins University, 
the Harbor UCLA Medical Center, and the University of New Mexico, as well as at Imperial College in London and the University of Zurich in Switzerland. I spent years in denial about my mother's death. I was passive in accepting that this illness would take her life. I was blindly optimistic that we could save her, bolstered by the programming of my upbringing, that death needn't be dealt with, accepted, or even talked about earnestly. And I refused to believe that she was deteriorating. Denial sits on a shelf in the recesses of our minds, filling the containers of our psyche until there is nowhere for it to go. It begins to seep into our life in the guise of bitterness, hatred, violence, and if we allow it and give space for it, truth. I dreamt of my mother's death in the weeks before it happened. When I woke, heaving with tears, I knew it was coming. The denial no longer held space in my mind, replaced instead by a simultaneously woeful and compassionate acceptance that wheat in my heart. Since the death of my adopted mother, Gloria, five years ago, I've borne witness to the deaths of my aunt, two dear friends, and my paternal grandmother. And this year, I watch as my biological mother, Colleen, lives out the remainder of her life between a hospital bed and a nursing home. It's been five years of cumulative grief, and with each loss, I've gained a new perspective on the inevitability of death, whether it be of natural causes, or disease, or even by one's own hand. It's coming for us all, and the sooner we can reconcile with this natural course of life and our deep connection to the cycle that ensnares us all, the more joy and awe and love we can have for ourselves, for each other, and for the planet that we call home. So how do you envision the end of your life? What feelings do you want your loved ones to be left with? I want people to feel cherished. I want them to know that I cherish them. I want people to just feel complete and whole and that it's, um, that it is a, a time to rebuild and it, it is a time of renewal. I always say that uh, I hope that it works out that I get carried off the island in a box and then I come back in a smaller box. Beyond that, uh, I trust my friends to laugh a lot and I've done a lot of stupid things that they can laugh at <laughs> in my day. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I expect, a, I would hope for an, uh, an island send off. Well, I guess I just want to live on in their hearts, you know, in a hopefully in a positive light, you know, with love. I want to be remembered by my community. You want to feel like some of the things you've done have made a difference. You know, I would dedicate groves of trees or name roads after people, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Those things are nice, but mostly I just want the people I've loved in my life to know that uh, whatever happened, I, it was good, and I, I go out thinking nothing but loving thoughts. Nobody gets out of here alive. <laughs> that's a fact. Truth. If you die with love in your heart instead of hate in your heart, mm-hmm. I think it makes a big difference. My mother's house Time stands still 
And the relics of a lifetime sit upon the window. Thanks to writer-producer Mercedes Grant for this edition of Deep Roots. Technical help from Rob Selmanovic and Sean Cowell. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation, other donors, and the Clahoose First Nation for their support. More information can be found at cortezradio.ca.